I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Jordan Jarrett-Bryan of Channel 4 News, and Darren Lewis of The Daily Mirror. The more things appear to change, the more they seem to stay the same. The current top four in the Premier League features the same four clubs who finished there last season. Chelsea lead going into the international break, Liverpool a point behind. The Manchester clubs are a further point back ahead of Everton and Brighton on goal difference. Now, Jordan, I know it's early in the season, but how many of those six, or let's get real and say four, can be considered realistic challengers for the title? Three. Just three for me. And I've not deviated away from that since the start of of the season. I think it is Manchester City, Chelsea and Liverpool. For two reasons, I think they have the squads and the managers that I believe have what it takes to cross the line. Also, the experience of of, of crossing the line and winning the big titles. Look, look at the last five years: Man City, Chelsea, and Liverpool have all won Champions League and, and Premier Leagues. So I, they're the three that I that I went into the season believing would contest for the title. United. I mean, a lot of people pre-season were tipping United to be part of that. Make, make up a foursome because of it's Manchester United and the Ronaldo signing, Varane came in. But I, I, I maintain that I think that the, the, the influence of the top managers is underestimated in winning a Premier League title. I don't care who you sign. I don't care what team you have. And history has taught us this as well. If you don't have a man that can bring it all together and knows what he's doing at various parts of the season and even various parts of individual games, you're going to drop too many points. And that is the reason why, for me, Manchester United are in that kind of no-man's land of, I don't think they're as good as the other three, but they're better than everybody else. So, So for me, it's three teams. Liverpool, for me... I know Darren is going to speak on Liverpool in a minute, and I know that he tipped Liverpool to win the title pre-season. <laughs> I'm, I'm just putting it out there. You, that's what you said. For me, I, I, I have put Liverpool in, in that conversation simply because I, I've got them third, finishing third for me, but I think it'll be a close third. But the reason why I think they're in the title conversation is because for me, if everybody in the league is fit and firing, I still believe Liverpool have the best defence in the Premier League. I'm taking their back five before everybody else's. I think City have the midfield and the defence to really dominate games and keeping off clean sheets. And I think that Chelsea have the firepower. We're not seeing it quite yet, but I think they do have the firepower to, to, to shoot their way to a title. So for me, those are the three teams that I, I, I would say will come five games to go, we'll be looking at as, as title contenders. Okay, Darren, this is your chance to bask in the glory of your erudition. Liverpool, unbeaten in 19 games in all competitions, 
but they have already dropped points to both Chelsea and City. How significant might that be? I'm not quite sure it will be that significant. And the reason being, even if they hold, even if they take points off their rivals, but they're undefeated, in other words, they beat everyone else, then I think that could be enough for the title for them. I predict them, funnily enough, all of the garlands and the platitudes are being thrown the way of Mo Salah and Sadio Mane, but I tip them precisely because of what Jordan just said, that defence, titles are built on defences and they are back to full defensive strength. And I, I felt they got far too little sympathy last season when it was clear for all to see that without their colossus, they were a rudderless ship. And if I tell you that they are now undefeated in 51 games at Anfield with Virgil van Dijk when he plays, that tells you the story. Only drawn seven times, won 44 of those matches. And I think his influence is underestimated. Yesterday, Trent Alexander-Arnold wasn't even fit. And had he been fit, they probably could have won that game. We haven't really seen the best of... Kanata yet, but because the team are doing so well, it's giving him time to just get his feet under the Anfield table. Simikas started the season, of course, because Robertson had had one or two injury issues, and he looks a capable player as well. And we all know that Alisson is a high-class goalkeeper. So I think that back five, as Jordan was saying, is the rock on which the title challenge will be built. And I don't think it will matter that they drop points. If you look at the previous three games they played, they scored three goals in each of those matches. And that tells you everything. I think they'll win the league. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about defensive certainties really getting the, the, the praise they deserve. You know, I think if you're talking about a match-winning incident, that block by Rodri on Firmino was was astonishing and that was as good as a goal scoring a goal but the football is all about the mystique of scoring the great goal and Mo Salah certainly did that didn't he Jordan can you think of a better goal that you've seen this season or or, or ever ever oh yeah I mean my, my favorite goal of all time is Maradona's second goal second. first goal second goal second yeah yeah, um, against England, 70... Uh, no, no, 86. 80, 80, 80 I've got uh, two gentlemen. I'm, I'm old enough to have been <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> I was going to say, I don't want to be... <laughs> You're about to get banned from this podcast, Jordan. I was, I was, I was, I was. Uh, um, yes, that is my favourite goal of all time. There's a Dan goal in the Champions League final against Leverkusen. So I've, there's other goals I think were better. I don't think it's even Salah's best goal, personally. It was a phenomenal goal, don't get me wrong. But he scored a couple of similar goals in that pocket. I remember one against Tottenham three years ago at Anfield. Phenomenal goal. One against Everton in that same corner. Phenomenal goal. So it's a, it, was a, it was a brilliant goal, no doubt. But I think he scored better. And that says, you know, shows the bar that he set but, himself. But Jordan, Jordan, I, I mm. think, Mike, the, the reason, if I may, Mike, the reason mm. you put that is because, yes, he scored a similar goal against Tottenham. And yes, there have been other great goals scored against Premier League opposition. But this, the context of this, City had only conceded once so far this season. Defensively, they were so strong, so powerful that they kept out a Chelsea side who themselves had previously only conceded once this season. And pieces were being written about this side 
as if they were the great AC Milan side and what you know the great Italian teams of of yesteryear because they were so organized so mean ruthless defensively so for Salah to leave them in a heap as he did took some doing and and so I I do I I agree with you both possibly wasn't his best goal because he scored better goals against other opposition but when you take into account that he's scoring against a team of the highest caliber in Premier League terms then of yeah you have to really say that that's one of certainly one of the great all-time great Premier League goals there was a touch of Burkamp in there with in terms of the the touch mm. and the close control a touch of Messi with a single-mindedness and the composure to finish when he got within sight of the goal a touch of Suarez in there as well in the way that he dropped his shoulder that there was so much of the greats in there that you I, have I, to say, say it was a wonderful strike. No, I take your point. The context is, is, is important, as you say, Darren. I totally agree with that. I think the strength, one of the things about people don't talk about is the core strength of Salah. He, you know, he's not the biggest guy, but to score the sorts of goals, you have to have really great balance and core strength, and he's got that. And I take, I'm so, so glad you mentioned the element of Suarez in there, Darren, because all week there was a discussion around is peak Salah better than peak Suarez? And I think the general consensus was people were leaning towards, we've discussed it, I think you're in the kind of Suarez camp. But for me, in a really funny way, that goal shows why I'm in the Salah camp because that was a very Suarez-esque goal. So if he can do what Suarez can do, and for me more, that for me is why I'm leaning towards Salah. I I think we don't respect Salah enough in my view he would go down for me if he left tomorrow he would go as one of the greatest Premier League players of all time I think there's an argument to discuss top 10 I think it's a debate it's a debate and for me I know he was there longer than Suarez I know that he's maybe got arguably a better team than Suarez but I honestly listen Suarez for me was was an animal was was ridiculous I think we need to start respecting Salah a little bit more. So, in answer to your question, it was a phenomenal goal, Mike, for sure. Not his best, but I take Darren's point that in the context of who's playing against and in a team, in a game, sorry, where they weren't particularly great, for him to turn it on like that and say, you know what, I'm going to do a ting now. Give me the ball. I'm going to bend up two man and bang it in the top bins. That, for me, I think makes him stand out from everybody else. Yeah, well, when, when you think about it, you know, you talked about context there, Jordan. You know, Darren, I thought Jurgen Klopp captured it perfectly where he said, look, this club never forgets anything. And that goal will be talked about in 60 or 70 years time. Now, okay, he might be known over the top slightly, but that's what I love about Klopp is that he, he has this emotional intensity, which probably reflects the nature of the club that he's stewarding. As the season progresses, is it possible to keep that level of emotional intensity going there are very few coaches who can do it some try some fail some have a limited ability to do that before they lose their fan bases but I think Klopp has got that because Liverpool are a very unique club to manage because of all of the history of success intertwined with not just footballing but societal despair and I think to connect, to plug into that and to retain that, to understand that it's very, very difficult to do. And some good managers have tried and failed. Roy Hodgson was manager there, failed utterly to connect with what it takes to be Liverpool manager. You're not just a manager when you take over at Liverpool. 
you're an ambassador for the club, you're a link between football and society. And Klopp bridges that superbly well. He under, I remember when he was asked last week about Roger Hunt and straight away he was able to quantify just how much of a contribution Hunt had made to the football club, not just as a person, but as a man. And he was able to understand why Hunt was so revered and continues to be by the footballing public in Merseyside, but also the footballing public on a wider scale with England. But also the Klopp is uniquely positioned, I would say, to understand all of the issues around the other off-the-field areas that mean so much to the Liverpool public. So can he maintain that? Yes, he's doing that right now. And he did it during their title-winning season. And he did it during their Champions League-winning season. And he continues to do it. And for all the money that they have at City, I don't quite think, and you only have to look at the disconnect between Pep and the fans over his call for them to be present for the game against Southampton, when we all know that City fans have been backing that team, they were packing out Main Road when they were in the second division, to know that, you know, Pep doesn't quite have it. For all the money he has at the Etihad, he doesn't quite have that connection with the fans. I think there is an understanding that at some point in the future, Pep will leave and he'll go on to another project and he'll champion that. But Klopp, Klopp is absolutely embedded into the Liverpool culture. Yeah, well, Pat was certainly emotionally engaged yesterday. You know, he absolutely went into one, didn't he? When he thought Milner should have been sent off probably correctly. It was interesting, you know, afterwards it was all pally-pally, you know, Guardiola embracing Milner in the tunnel. He also said something which I thought was quite significant, although there was an element of, of smoke blowing involved. You know, he said, look, Liverpool for me remain one of the best three teams in the world. I'm assuming he thinks that City is in that group. Who do, you, who do you think is third team that he was talking about or thinking about there, Jordan? I would like to believe he was talking about... I think he might have meant Bayern Munich. Yeah, I too. Yeah, I, I think do. Bayern Munich because I, I think he's got a lot of respect for what they are and what they do. Obviously, he was there for a couple of years. Some may think he's talking about Chelsea, but I, I think that if he was to write down the, the two teams he would least like to face at their best, I think he'd probably pick Liverpool and Bayern Munich. So I, I would I would go with, with Bayern in that sense. Just on the game itself, again, I, I, I thought this was a really good game. This is one of those games that I thought, even though Liverpool weren't at their best for, for, for an hour, it was a game that exemplified to me two teams at the top of their game. And... There's certain games in seasons that I think fall into this category. I remember a game between two games between Chelsea and Man City. One was at Stamford Bridge about four years ago. One nil City, they won it. De Bruyne scored a goal in the second half. And it was one nil City, but the calibre of football between both teams was so high. There was another game about two years before that between Man City and Chelsea at the Etihad again. I think City won that one 2 0. It was just two teams at the top of their game playing really well. And I believe. 
if you're a serious team going for a title, you don't get involved in four threes and three threes and five twos. It's normally a one, one, two, one, worst case a two, two. And the reason why I was I enjoyed this game so much is because and the reason why I respect Liverpool a hell of a lot after yesterday's game was that despite not being at their best, they were battered for an hour. Let's have it right. They were battered for an hour but they still find themselves 2-1 up after 70, 75 minutes. And that, for me, is a sign of a really, really good team. So this was a high-quality game with two teams. One was better than the other, in my opinion. But I thought a draw probably overall, because of Liverpool's way to hang on and, and take the lead, they probably deserved a, a point overall. But it was a phenomenal game of football contested by two top teams at the top of their game. Yeah, it, it featured, a I think, a coming-of-age performance by Phil Foden. Look at Jack Grealish, though, Darren, if we could. He's still to dominate a big game, isn't he? You know, oh, do we give him slack because it's only early in the season and he's still coming to terms with it all? But if he's got to justify himself, he has to get hold of big games like that, doesn't he? Absolutely, particularly with the price tag around his neck. I remember when Gareth Bale went to Real Madrid for £85 billion in 2013 and almost immediately... <laughs> I, I, I use it advisedly, but he hit the ground running. Let, let, let's put it that way. And you could see where that money went relatively quickly. I know there'll be somebody on Twitter who'll say, no, he took 13 games. But as soon as he put that shirt on, you know, you could see that it didn't weigh heavy on him. You could see exactly why Zinedine Zidane had launched a, a sustained campaign over the preceding 18 months or so. To, to basically get him to understand that he was really wanted at the Bernabeu. The interesting thing about Grealish, and it is nothing whatsoever to do with him, you get the opportunity to go to, go to Manchester City, you take it. But the world and his wife knows that really what they needed was a centre forward. And as wonderful as this game was yesterday, I think City could have won it had they had a centre forward, just like they could have won the game against PSG. They've got a lot of guys who can thread balls through the eye of a needle, like Jack Grealish. And and as I say, it's nothing to do with his ability. He has wonderful ability. And yes, this, this could, given time, be the kind of stage that he dominates. But I look at De Bruyne, Bernardo Silva, Red Mares, Raheem Sterling. You know, I look at so many players that City already have. And what they do need is somebody like a Salah, somebody like a Mane, who in these big games are going to make big contributions. I don't actually agree with that. So, sorry, do, do, sorry, I, I jumped in there, Mike. Sorry. No, it's okay. Well, I was actually going to tell the listeners that I was looking at you during that that answer and there was this impish smile played across your face and then you started you know, nodding, <laughs> not nodding, you were just shaking your head like this sage old warrior that you are. We're just so bringing why? our WhatsApp group to life, my, my <laughs> <laughs> You know, the reason why is because whilst what Darren is saying and what other people have said about the lack of a striker for City, I, I understand it. There are certain games, this and last season, where you can clearly see, had they had a striker, they would have scored a goal, a couple of goals more. I understand that and I, I accept that. 
But people, they weren't saying that last week when they beat Chelsea. Now, I know Gabriel Jesus played in that game, but he didn't play as a forward. So you almost can't have it both ways. The reason why Manchester City were so dominant against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge last week was because they had an extra man in midfield to dominate the game. You take out that midfielder and put them up front, yes, you may have a guy that's a, that's a more potent threat in front of goal, accept that, but then you don't dominate the game as much. So uh, you, you almost can't have both. The reason why City created so many chances yesterday and albeit in the first half missed them all was because they dominate the midfield and that's because Gabriel Jesus is dropping in as a as a attacking midfielder, if you like. So when people talk about, oh yeah, if Harry Kane was there, there'd be, be 10 points clear by now. Well, maybe they would, but maybe they wouldn't because then the dominance that Pep Guardiola likes to employ in his team would be relinquished because you have a forward, an out-and-out -out forward there. So people need to really understand that Pep's gone this way. I want to dominate games and I'm backing the Fodens, the Sterlings, the Silvers, the De Bruyne's to score the goals. And some games it will go wrong. Some games there will be games like yesterday whereby they create 15 great chances and score two goals. Do you exchange that then for maybe creating seven good chances and scoring two goals. It's, it's, it's kind of what, what, what do you prefer? So when people say, if we had a striker, if City had a striker, they would have scored more goals. That kind of negates the point that, well, they dominated the game because they didn't have a striker sort of thing. So that's why I was disagreeing slightly with what Darren was saying there. Yeah. Well, lest we forget, as I mentioned right at the start, Chelsea are leading the Premier League, but actually probably after quite a chastening week, what do you think they'd have learned from this last week, Darren? Well, the, the interesting thing about the two defeats that were that they followed a press conference I was at where Tuchel said that for all that they had done to that point and, and they won that winning run and they'd only conceded one goal in the Premier League and you, you're right, we were raving about them. And he said, no, we're, we're, I've seen things that I'm not quite happy with. We're not where I want us to be just yet. So I think Tuchel will stay calm. He'll know that had they, having come up against a good side, not being where he wanted the side, his team to be, that they were going to catch a cold, which is exactly what happened. He'll have to find another way. To when they meet again against City to to deploy Lukaku in a way that doesn't see him snuffed out as City so superbly did last week. And it might just be that as simple as them believing in their own publicity a little bit too soon. But I certainly think that we haven't yet seen the best of Chelsea this season. Just very quickly to, to, to respond to what, what, what Jordan said a second ago as well, the reason why I think City lack a striker is almost precisely because of what you said about Bayern Munich. Bayern Munich are so outstanding because they've got some fantastic guys who can supply the bullets, but also in Lewandowski, they've got a guy who can decide the tightest of games. They won the Premier League last season without a striker, City. Obviously, we know that Jesus, but Jesus wasn't really the guy, your 25-goal-a-season man. But what... They will last season when they won the league. Liverpool didn't have Van Dyke, Chelsea didn't have Tuchel for the early months of the season, and once they did, they really did go an outstanding run. And the other thing is, they can't possibly win the Champions League without a striker either, a centre forward, because it, it simply can't be done. That the quality is just too high. 
So there are two levels. What, so, sorry, why is that? Sorry, Dan, why? Why can't they win the Champions League without a striker? Well, because there'll be tight games where they won't get a lot of chances. And often in those games, it's a high-class centre-forward that proves to be the difference. And they don't have that yet. And the top teams, the ones that do go on to win it, they they generally do. And when it came to between two teams with two top defences last season, as it was Chelsea and City, Chelsea didn't yet have that striker, but they did have somebody who knew where the goal was, who was able to prove the difference, and City couldn't respond. So uh, I, I think they do. They do need that striker. I mean, we'll, we'll we'll have this conversation again, of course. Yeah, but isn't it isn't it about Jordan? Isn't it about balance? If you look at Ronaldo, Ronaldo was bought, and with the inevitability that he's going to score thirty thirty five goals this season. Yet everyone knows what the issues at Manchester United are: Solskjaer's lack of pedigree, poor prioritisation in recruitment, which is probably summed up by the lack of a defensive midfield player. But they've got, you know. Ronaldo as the as the as the cherry on top of a half baked cake. Ronaldo, it seems to me, is going to be the catalyst for change at Old Trafford. You only look at his obvious and very, very public disenchantment after the Everton game to see that the pressure is going to be on the manager because of him. So very long winded way of making a point. He'll give you goals, but he won't give you trophies. I think that's possibly true. Yes, I think I said on on the, this podcast last time I was on a few weeks back, Mike, that, and I got battered for it afterwards. But I stand by it that I think Man United are my tip to win the Champions League. You're still uh, on that precipice. I, I am. I am. I'm sticking with it. I'm, 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 I've gone too deep now, Mike. I've got to hang on with it. I've got to hang on with it. I've, I've took some flack for that. Believe me. Oh, but man. but the reason why I said that was because of people like Ronaldo. I think that Man United are a team that do play in moments and have individuals that can do a thing. And I think in a in a cup competition, that might be enough to get you to the semis and the final of the Champions League. The flip, though, is, I think, to what you're alluding to, he'll either win you the Champions League or he'll get you sacked. <laughs> he may get Solskjaer sacked because the, 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 the gesticulating, the huffing and puffing, the hands in the air, the walking off, that wasn't good. That was not good for, for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And he's got a problem now because he now has to really manage Ronaldo. He has to now show that he's strong enough to be the Man United manager and have a talk to Ronaldo and say, listen, I know you're frustrated. I know you wanted to score. I know we didn't win the game. But listen, that can't happen. Do all that stuff in the changing rooms. Come and speak to me and tell me you're angry you didn't start me. Cool, like grown men, grown professionals. Don't do that because Ronaldo is very deliberate in what he does. He would have known that there are 75 million cameras in Old Trafford that are going to be watching him and watching him alone, watching his reaction. So he would have known that what he is doing isn't just him saying, I'm Ronaldo, I'm a winner, a 1-1 draw at home to Everton is not acceptable. He would have also known that the back page would have been on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and that he is then on him. So I think the Ronaldo signing actually is going to do one of two things. It's either going to win the Champions League or it's going to get Ole Gunnar Solskjaer the sack and just briefly uh, the United fans who are in the Ole Gunnar Solskjaer camp they have to surely now understand that he is not the guy that's going to take them to a title I commend Man United to the owners and the board and whoever for believing in him backing in him going away from the tried and tested Mourinho's Louis Van Gaal's and backing a guy that they believe could do a thing 
However, I had a chat with a couple of separate Man United fans, one of whom myself and Darren are very good friends with. And they made an interesting point independently to me that the reason why they don't think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer will be sacked is simply this. Manchester United are not about winning. Winning is not the priority. The priority for Manchester United, as they saw it as separate fans, was top four, keep the money coming in. And as long as Solskjaer can continue to do that, the board will be happy. Because if you are Manchester United and you are ruthless and you're about winning, Solskjaer doesn't even start the season. Because everybody in his dog can see that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has a ceiling and I think he's reached that ceiling. So going back to your initial point about Ronaldo, I think it's going to go one of two ways and one of two ways drastically. I think he'll either take them somehow by hook or by crook to a major trophy, I think the Champions League, or him being there will amplify so much pressure on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer that actually his influence on the team and the PR of the team, I think will be toxic and ultimately resulting in him leaving the club. Yeah. If only things were as simple as they appear to be at Watford, Darren. Least surprising story so far. You know, the first leaves of autumn are beginning to change colour <laughs> and they change manager. They've sacked Azisco. Claudio Ranieri is apparently on the way. What's all that about? One of the funniest things I saw over the last 12 hours, 24, 24 hours, I should say, the idea that by maybe 2030, you won't be more than 10 yards away from someone who used to manage Watford. <laughs> <laughs> Which um, I, I just... Do you know, there, there, there are lots of people who, who who say, oh, my goodness me, you you critics, you don't get our club. Well, if getting your club means understanding why over the course of 10 years, you could be managed, you are managed by 15 different people, then yeah, I, I don't get it. I don't understand it. And my my view is that when everyone, whenever anyone loses their job, there are always these howls of outrage. And sometimes, as is the case, for example, when Nigel Adkins was sacked by Southampton and Maurizio Pochettino came in, the people who are surprised end up being confounded because you know they've made a good decision but when somebody does come in to prove to almost justify that decision then surely you back them you give them the time and it might well be that in football's ecosystem we all know there's always a better bigger club and someone comes along and plucks you away and if that's the case fair enough but if you get a guy who came in and, and when he arrived, people's not quite sure, but then he wins those 14 games out of 18 to get them promoted and they get into the Premier League and they're 14th at the moment, ahead of play yesterday anyway. Yes, they weren't great at the weekend against Leeds, but they are a promoted club. It's going to take them time to find their feet. I, I just can't at any level. And I, I know there have been people who have popped up on social media and said, no, oh, I can understand it. They're right to do it and whatever else. Because there always is. There are always people that, that that kind of view that maybe it's the ones who are predictably howling their derision who are in the wrong. But I can't think of a company that works when there is such a high turnover of custodians. I, I can't see that that instills any kind of stability and you know it, it does seem to be a dirty word because people kind of cite Chelsea and Real Madrid as clubs who have changed their managers and they've still managed to maintain a level of success 
but they're very different clubs to Watford. And if you're saying that Watford's MO is just to get into the Premier League, take the money, then go down again and not really care, fine. But what happens then is that you can't then blame the players when they turn around and say, I've got a better offer, I'm going to go. You can't turn around to the players and say, no, you've got to stay here. You've got a contract. You've got that. Because you are not respecting the club, so they won't respect the club. And also what you'll get is managers who'll come in and say, I've signed a contract. I'm not really bothered. If the, if the team doesn't do well, I was going to do one of those lines from Goodfellas, but I probably better not on the... Um... <laughs> Keep it clean, mate. But, Keep but it clean. you know, the, the, what you'll get is mercenaries. Guys will come in and take the money shrug of the shoulders, move on. Are they really guys who care about the club going forward, long-term, the best interests of the club? Or are they just guys who will parachute in, take them? I mean, Claudio Ranieri is about to sign. The guy's nearly 70 years of age. I would suggest his best footballing days are behind him. But the problem for Watford is, who else are they going to get? They'll get people who come in, but are they people who are necessarily going to take the club forward? Not for me. I just think super briefly, sorry, Mike, I think there's a, a, Darren makes a good point there. And I think there's a, we have to differentiate between the club as the owners and the, uh, the people that run it see it and the fans. The club, the model works. Whether we like it or not is a separate discussion, but the model is we want to keep managers hungry on their toes that we can get a burst of wins to keep us in the Premier League, keep the money coming in. That's where we want to be. Keep costs low, keep the income income high. So as, as a model... We know what Watford are about. I think we need to stop trying to stop being shocked at this now because we know they're many clear what they are. It's the fans I feel sorry for because if you're a Watford fan, you're thinking, well, what am I supporting? What am I signing up to? What am I buying into as a Watford fan? Am I buying into a club that just want to, you know, fritter around, you know, the, the, the bottom ends of the Premier League and just stay up and it's great to be in the Premier League? Or am I supporting a club that has ambitions to enable me as a fan to believe and hope that we could win an FA Cup or a League Cup or finish top 10? As a fan, it must be very, very... I don't know. I'll be disillusioned and a little bit deflated at the model of what I'm seeing at my football club. Maybe Watford fans accept it, but I I think for the fans it's difficult. But as a, as an outsider, I totally accept and understand why Watford do what they do. It works. Yeah. Well, let's look at another another model if we could, Jordan. You know, if I'm looking at winners so far this season, I'm looking at two clubs with very very specific and well thought through policies. First of those, Brentford. You know, they've got a reputation of daring to be different, haven't they? And if you look at it, they've they've lost, I think, only once, although the win at West Ham was, was only their second and they've drawn four games. That is a really good start. And no one is talking about them getting anywhere near relegation, are they? No, no, not yet anyway. So it's a brilliant start from from Brentford. I like what they're about. I'm actually going to spend a bit of time this week looking into the structure of the club, how they do certain things. I think we've all read a little bit about behind the scenes there, but I'm very intrigued by Brentford. And I think Brentford are an example of a team that have come up and you can balance 
being financially prudent, but also play some good football. I think everybody can win here if you if you follow Brentford. The club seem to be, you know, secure in terms of they've not overspent. They seem to be financially stable as a business model. That seems to work. But also, you've also got fans that are happy as well because they're seeing good football every single week. They're in the Premier League now and they've started well. They're, they're currently seventh in the Premier League. I think what their model or what their strategy this season is, and I think it's a smart one, let's try and bank as many points in the first half of the season, so pre-Christmas as possible. Because at some point, Brentford will get smashed 5-0, 6-0. They will get battered at some point this season. So let's try and do almost what I think the Watford did a couple of, a few years back. I think Blackpool tried to do it and they really fell off. Into it. Let's try and bank as many points as we can in the first half of the season to ensure that by the time, you know, February, March, April comes, when there will be a dip in form, because being new to the Premier League, I think that that will happen. It doesn't really matter because we've kind of got enough points in the bag to ensure that that, that, that we're okay. They've also got a really big team. I looked at I looked at some of their players on, on match the day two last night and they've got they've got some they've got like five or six really good players. And they made the point in the analysis on the program yesterday, match the day two, that they spend a lot of time putting the ball in the box and not just lumping it in the box, but putting in quality crosses because if they don't win the first ball, they're going to win the second ball. And I think that is a strategy that I really looked at as well and thought, okay, their strategy is to flood the box, try and score goals, but be physical as well. They, they beat my team Arsenal first game of the season. They gave Liverpool a really good game as well. I think they'll be okay. But to, to your point, their model is one that I think is very, intrigue and one that I think will, will prove to be successful and I just hope it's not dependent on any one element i.e. if the manager goes they're in trouble if said player goes they're in trouble I think it's a structure that actually is very rounded that they, they I think they're going to be around for a little while yeah well it's a very holistic strategy and you know when you've talked about you know, set piece coaches you know, that, that was essentially started there the other model which looks to be working Darren is Brighton it's a policy of, of incremental growth. And what I've found really interesting is one, you know, the amount of money put in by the owner, but it's, it's, it's funding infrastructure. But secondly, there's a consistency of coaching there, which actually overcomes, you know, the day-to-day the -day problems of, of injuries. You know, you think about it, Brighton have started well without Eve Basuma and also the new signing Enoch Mwepu. Are we seeing a new Leicester emerge here? Well, very possibly, because almost under the radar, they've been making steady growth. They've made a number of really good signings, not just in the last couple of windows. Tarek Lamptey is still one of my favourite players and possibly one of the fastest players to put a zero alongside his transfer fee that I've ever seen in the Premier League. They took him from Chelsea for £5 million. And uh, I think they could probably get around about <laughs> 10 times that amount for him once he gets playing again. I think, so cards on the table. I remember when Brighton sat Chris Hewton and possibly my heart was on my sleeve there because I have no compunction about saying, you know, I, I, we don't have enough black coaches in our system. And, and so when Chris Hewton was sacked, who was a standard bearer for black football managers, it broke my heart. He'd kept the club in the Premier League. It was a particularly ruthless sacking. Clearly, it was not based on race, but the fact was that the message it sent out for black coaches was heartbreaking. 
so I, I just want to make the distinction between the mm-hmm. two, just in case anyone that wants to hit me over the head. But when they brought in Graham Potter, it was bold. He'd done great work at Ostersons, but we didn't really know how that would translate to English football. But as is with now seeing to be the case, and this is what I mean about making signing sackings and bring someone in and sometimes it turns out to work well they are doing it the right way because as far as Potter's concerned he's been given time to finish his work they've stomached the defeats the setbacks and now they are riding high and that doesn't just come overnight I looked at the game at the weekend against Arsenal and it was Arsenal that frustrated Brighton rather than Brighton frustrating Arsenal It was Brighton where I saw the progress, the evidence of a club moving forward, not Arsenal. It was Brighton where I saw a real cohesion and a real consistency of tactics. I love Cucurella down the left-hand side. He's going to put (laughs) some zeros on his name, on his transfer fee as well. It'll be interesting to see how long they hold on to him because he was easily the man of the match and he would walk into that Arsenal team for me. But I just think, Potter's man management, his level head, as you were saying, so good for a club that absolutely could be a fairy tale story this season. Yeah, I remember watching Cucurella play for Barca B about three years ago, and he looked ideally suited to English football. I suppose, you know, I saw you again being quizzical, Jordan, when you were talking about, or when Darren was talking about Arsenal. I'll put to you, actually, Arteta isn't doing that bad a job because what he's doing is essentially recrafting and rebuilding a team. I thought it was interesting that the average age against Brighton was 23 and a half. And if you take Aubameyang out of that, I think it was 22.7. So patience, eh? Yeah. And it's something that a lot of football fans and in particular Arsenal fans don't have a lot of, but again, on this podcast and everywhere I've been, I've been, Mikel Arteta's number one fan and sometimes blindly so and I I think he has many flaws but I I do feel he needs time to do what he needs to do I think if Arteta's going to stay at Arsenal for in the long term he has to be quite cute about about how he goes about his work and what I mean by that is he has to buy himself time so he has to almost limp from four games to four games to four games so the Arsenal fan base if he loses the next two games after the international break it'll be who oh yeah he's not the guy he's got to go he's got to go he's got to go I think if he can show some small wins I think that will buy him some time so by small wins I think of the Arsenal fan base are seeing Saka and Mill Smith Rowe I don't know what's happened with Martinelli that's a, that's a weird one but Martinelli develop I think that he'll get a bit of slack. I think if the Arsenal fan base lose a few games, but they see a back five, which we're seeing three games in a row now forming and getting better, I think he will buy himself a little bit more time. I think it's the the crazy decisions of, of selection sometimes, the poor subs, losing to teams he shouldn't be losing to at home. Those are the things that I think put his, his job on, on, under the spotlight. But Arsenal should have lost that game on Saturday. Arsenal were absolutely battered. Absolutely smashed by Brighton. It was as a familiar theme from Brighton as from last season of Brighton dominating play 
playing really well, but just not having that ruthless finish in front of goal to kill the games. And that could come back to Horton later in the season. But Arsenal were fortunate. But the one thing I would say about the, the, the draw was that I took a little bit of positivity from the fact that Arsenal were so bad, but managed to get out of there with a draw. I, I tweeted after about 75 minutes. We're in that now, don't lose it territory because Arsenal were, were hanging on. Let's have it right. They were hanging on. To get out of there with a point, I, I, I thought was a, was a slight win for Arsenal. But, but with Arteta, I think if he could just basically go under the radar and go about his work, have a cup run maybe, develop some players, I think the Arsenal fans would maybe forgive a few losses here and there along the way. Can I just say very quickly, I, I think as far as Arsenal are concerned, I, I'm not going to come on and preach patience and then suddenly start advocating sacking. What I would say is this. I'm still not seeing an intensity about Arsenal's work that I should be from a top team. Yes, you're right. Nine of the 11 at the weekend were under 24. So that's clearly a team for the future. But Arsenal are one of those big clubs that are normally here for the now. People used to deride Arsene Wenger when he said that fourth place was like a trophy. But in the modern game, where you need Champions League football to attract high-caliber players, it, it's all important. And I think I, I think back to Kenny Dalglish when he went back to Liverpool after Roy Hodgson was sacked, I think 2011, if I'm not mistaken. And he won the League Cup that year and reached the final of the FA Cup. And the club still sacked him because they were eighth in the league. And that's what's important. People talk about cup runs, but you can win cups if you're outside of that elite top six. And that's OK. But you, when you're inside that top six, even if you win the league cup, it doesn't save your job. Ask Juan de Ramos, who got sacked by Spurs the season after he won the league cup and Spurs started with two points from eight games. I just think a club the size of Arsenal, the standards are high because they are a massive, massive club. And you, you've got to decide what you want. You, you can build a team for the future, but there's no guarantee that you're going to be the steward of that team in the future if you can't win matches. And that's the balance in that, that Arteta's got to find. Mm. What about the power of pragmatism, Darren? You know, I, I look at Rafa Benitez and he absolutely you know, exemplifies that. You know, great summer signings, Andros Townsend, Damari Gray. He might not be the most popular manager in, in, in the Premier League, but he's probably the most effective. Yeah, this is one that's going to be fairly easy to, to deal with because I think that he's a great example of an identity. He might have lost, he, might, he, he may lose games this season rather, but you can see what he's trying to do. You could see from the outset, two wingers, he wants the ball wide, he wants crosses into the box and he wants Dominic Calvert-Lewin to feast off them. When Calvert-Lewin's not around, Richarlison's not around, he wants Rondon to feed off them. There is an intensity about the way they play, as you use the word pragmatism, about the way they play. And so far, not only is he getting results, but even more importantly, he's winning over some sceptical elements of the Everton fan base. The receptions he is getting, certainly for that first game against Southampton, really did surprise me because I expected there to be more animosity. The halftime team talk he gave in that game, possibly the most important he's given for some time because they were a goal down, came back to win. And in the second half, the fans, they were... Loving him might be a stretch, but they were having him. And I think they're still having him now. He came very close to beating uh, Manchester United at the weekend, a poor Tom Davis decision away, in fact. And I think he is a guy who could bring the good times back to Everton. He's not asking for time. He's not asking for 
lots and lots of money. He's just asking for a tweak here and there, and you're already seeing the benefits of bringing him in. Yeah. Darren used the word identity there, Jordan. Spurs, you know, glory, glory. <laughs> when you think about, well, well, actually, it's amazing when you think about it. They're eighth, despite all the doom and gloom. But I'll argue against myself there by saying, if I look around at the biggest disappointments so far this season, I look very sadly at Deli Alley, who's gone, who's gone backwards at, at an awful rate. I also look at Harry Kane. Agree? I, I do. So Deli Alley first. People often talk about Deli Alley over the last couple of years about having really poor, a really poor run of form or really poor stretch. I know he couldn't get into the Mourinho team than he was for a while. I think we have to stop talking about a poor run of form now, Deli Alley. It's four years. When you really, really think about it and check, check the timeline, it's nearly four years since he was good. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a long time. And I, I've never been, I'm not just saying this now because he's going through a tough time. I've never been completely convinced by Deli Ali. I've never thought he was the English saver that a lot of people in this country thought he was. I think that he was a brilliant central midfielder at MK Dons. He came to Spurs. He then became like a shadow striker of Kane in that kind of Frank Lampard arriving late into the box and scored some great goals. The minute Mauricio Pochettino changed the system, he was in trouble. And I've said, and I've said on, on various platforms before, I thought that he should have at that point then almost retrained and gone back into being a central midfielder because he wasn't going to get in the team in any other position. Ericsson was there as a creative force. He has the athleticism. He has the range of passing and the eye for goal for me to and the combativeness to be a really good central midfielder. And he didn't do that. And it's nearly four years now since we've really seen Deli Ali be good. And I'm wondering now if there are some things happening behind the scenes that we don't know about because... He's not rubbish. He's clearly not rubbish. But I just wonder, was he ever as good as we as we initially thought? And I think he has been a disappointment. I don't think his time at Spurs, you know, I don't think he'll be there much longer. I think if he's there next season, I'd be surprised. Harry Kane is a different one. Again, I'm bored of hearing, you know, Darren and his buddies talking about how professional Harry Kane is. You know, he's a professional. He wouldn't do that. I'm just like, I'm so bored of it. If he's such a professional... You've, wind your bottom lip in, stop sulking. I understand why he's upset he didn't get his dream move. I, I get it. I think he should have left Spurs two years ago, personally. I get it. But it hasn't happened. He's been paid a lot of money to do a job for Spurs. I don't actually think he's actually been as bad, again, as people have been making out. He's not been good, but he's not been awful. He has contributed in Spurs in some of the games. Against Arsenal, my lot last week, the best chances in that game actually were through Harry Kane. He, he, missed, a, he missed a sitter, granted, and should have had a penalty, but he's not been as bad as people have been making out. But I think, yes, if Spurs are going to do anything this season... He has to pull up, pull up his form, if you like, and really get it together. If not, for, if not for Spurs, but for England, because I wonder if there's going to be a bleed and a crossover with the World Cup next year. If he drags this poor form into into next year, going into the World Cup, I, I wonder if I don't know about his place being under threat, but I just wonder if you can't turn it off and turn it on. And I don't think I think Gareth Southgate will be the most concerned at the moment about his form. He needs to sort it out. If Spurs and England are going to do anything significant this and next year. Yeah, well, dear listener, you know, you're not able to see this, but you know, Darren is basically the Daily Mirror's answer to Marcel Marceau. <laughs> uh, you know, th there's a look there's a look of sort of amused disgust on his face. Come if, on, if Darren, that's let's not have a it. Come on, talk to me. 
Go on then, Darren. <laughs> Defend the club. Come on. <laughs> Actually, to be honest with you, you make a lot of good points that I find it hard to defend. And I think Spurs are an example. They, they often say if you buy cheap, you buy twice. And, and Spurs keep buying cheap. And they keep missing the opportunities to build on pivotal moments in their history. One of which, obviously, was when uh, uh, Pochettino got them to the Champions League final. It had been saying previously over the, what, 18 months, we've got to go big, we've got to rip this side up. They waited, they dithered, they sat on their hands, they did it too late. After all of the managers who could have been attracted once Pochettino had gone, had decided, no, you're not a club that invests in your manager. You don't back your manager, so... Roger stays at Leicester and Ten Hag stays at Ajax, exclamation mark in brackets. And lots of potentially top managers decide that they want to swerve a club with fantastic facilities and a wonderful infrastructure. I think they prevented Deli Ali from going to PSG last season where he could have re-established himself as a footballer, even on loan, and then let him come back as a different player and re-establish himself in the side. I'm not really that fussed about handling of Harry Kane because I think Kane made a lot of mistakes himself. I've never in my life seen a top-level player decide their own transfer fee as he tried to last season. And I, I think generally around about the transfer window, us journalists, we obviously tried to get the noises on the ground, but he basically wrote all of our stories for us with all of those quotes in all of those podcasts. So, and I think as far as Spurs were concerned, they got a value on him. They know what he's worth to the club. If City come and meet that value, he goes. If he doesn't, he stays. It's that simple. People say they're handling of the Harry Kane situation. What do they do? Nothing. They said, if you want him, this is the amount. City chose instead to buy Grealish. And as everybody knows, they're paying a penalty. I mean, if they had bought Kane, they'd walk this league. So no, I can't really defend Spurs that much, to be honest with you. I think they've made a lot of mistakes. And even though they beat Villa, I still think that they are going to rue some of the decisions that they've made in the recent past. Yeah. Let's look at just a final look at a couple of clubs, if we could, guys. Leicester, Jordan, they are stuttering. They've got injuries. You know, Fafana and Evans, you know, the loss of those two has basically destabilised their defence. I'm thinking of Brendan Rodgers here. You know, there is a theory, significantly enough probably proposed by fans of other clubs, that he escapes scrutiny because, in general, he's pretty well-liked by the media. Is there any substance to that accusation? It's a good question. I would suggest that when he was at Liverpool, I thought the media were... I'd go the other way. I thought the media were a little bit harsh on him personally. I, I, I thought we got a bit of a raw deal at Liverpool, not only by the club. I mean, by the time he was he, he'd moved on, it had gone a bit sour. But I, I thought he got a raw deal with, by the club, and I, I I thought he was a bit harshly treated by the media. I mean, it's no. Uh, Darren may check me here, but I think large parts of the print media are of a certain generation, and I think that that means that there's a certain affinity to Liverpool as a football club. So there's this kind of implicit kind of, Darren's nodding, but I think there's this kind of uh, unintentional, maybe, you know, Liverpool are my second club because when I, when I, when I, 
Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> when, I, when I when I grew up, Liverpool, the team, I don't know. So I think there's a protection of Liverpool anyway. And I think that when he was there, there was this kind of gunning for him, as I saw it. I could be wrong. And now is he getting a bit of a pass? Well, if he, let me put it, I put it like this. If he is getting a bit of a pass, I think he deserves it. I think he's earned to get a little bit of a bit a bit of favourable treatment. He's won F, Leicester the FA Cup. Now I know they won the Premier League a few years ago, but Leicester don't win big trophies, and he's got them not only winning winning a trophy, but he's got them competitive, knocking on the top four door two seasons in a row. That for me deserves a lot of credit. So. Uh, I don't think he is getting a little bit of a pass, but if he is, I think he deserves it. I tip Leicester to, to to be top four contenders again this season. And that was, albeit pre the Ronaldo signing. But I think that Leicester will be okay once they get their players back. But I am a little bit surprised as to their slow start. And I can only, as you put it, Mike, put it down to their, 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 two, their two main centre-backs being uh, injured. Yeah, there's a final... Club, just want you, Darren, just have a little look at Newcastle, you know, probably from behind your sofa. No wins. There's a football club there which seems to be suffering as collateral damage in a business deal that Mike Ashley is desperate to escape from. The fans have obviously had enough. I think they booed the team off at every in every game so far. Do you understand why? Yeah, absolutely. Four defeats in all competitions and four draws. No win. In any competition so far this season, uh, an owner who won't sell, uh, suitors who seem to have all sorts of issues surrounding them. I've said before, I I, I don't think Steve Bruce could possibly be enjoying the job. But I think what seems to be clear is that, as we all know, you never quit. You wait to be sacked so you can be paid off. That can be the only reason why... He is still there. None of it is is rocket science. They're a team low on confidence, possibly affected by the politics that surrounds the club. And they're falling like a stone. Second from bottom at the moment. Even relegation, because they've gone down before, hasn't really stopped Mike Ashley. He's a businessman and he, for him, it is all about getting the Premier League buck. So he get someone who can get them back up, as Chris Hewton did. And then, of course, Chris was sacked <laughs> once he did get them up because that's the way of football. I have sympathy for the fans, not for the club, for the position that they find themselves in, but for the fans still committed, still with their financial investment. Sometimes we get over-emotive about, oh, they deserve this. That They have invested in a football club, hoping for that football club to do right by them. But... The politics that surround the club mean that they'll never truly get the level of investment that they should. They're not getting the results that they want. And I'm worried that very often a big club finds themselves in and around it. And that looks to be Newcastle at this moment in time. Can I just add this very super briefly to that as well? Um, I, I agree with Darren. I, I, it's the fans I do feel for as well, because I'm one of these people that I don't like complainers. I don't like moaners. I'm one of these people that if you don't like something, find a way to change it. But the Newcastle fans, and in some ways, like the Watford fans earlier on we were discussing, I don't know what they can do. Because if I'm a Newcastle fan, the way that I'm wired, I'm not going to that. I'm not going anymore. And I know some Newcastle fans, and it's, they've spoken about it, having broken their heart to not go to St. James's Park or stopped going. I wouldn't go. But can you just imagine being a supporter of a football club 
where you see no hope. I'm an Arsenal fan. At times we feel that, you know, with our owners and the way we're going, we're hopeless. But even in our dark times, we still pull out an FA Cup here and there. Imagine supporting <laughs> a football club. Oh, what? What, are you, what are you laughing for? <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying, you know what I mean? But imagine supporting a football club where there's just no hope. The, the, the football is dire. So Maximan gives you moments of, of of excitement and enjoyment every now and again. But apart from that, it's just dire. It must be so demoralizing, so investing so much time, money and energy into your football club, knowing full well that nothing is going to come back. You may get the occasional shock win, but it must be really demoralizing for those fans. That I, I feel for the fans because my, my, my thing is do something about it. But then to counter that, what can the Newcastle fans do? Sure, other than nobody going to the ground, I don't know what they can do. So I, I feel for them a lot as well. I do feel for them. Yeah, well, you know, I think about all those empty words about how important fans are and they've just not been followed up. If you think about it, we're going into an international break here, which, to be honest, I find pretty un underwhelming. FIFA are showing every indication of forcing through a two-yearly World Cup. That's a means to an end for them. More money, greater influence. Their president, Gianni Infantino, has got the relentlessness of a career bureaucrat. And he also combines ignorance and arrogance. Now, his opponents, well, they're probably not much better, are they? The Premier League see themselves as a global product, so get ready for bloated pre-season tournaments in far-flung places. And then, of course, the 39th match. What about those they entitle, very patronisingly, legacy fans? Well, the guys in power basically say they can like it or lump it. This is our game. Well, I find that thoroughly depressing. Do you agree? If you do, or even if you don't, please let me know. In the meantime, thanks to Darren and Jordan for their insight. And thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. <laughs>